0: Hello, and welcome to February's Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Joining myself, Gary, is Mr. Riser. Hello. And of course, if you're not aware by now, and I'm sure you are, this is the place where we talk about non-sitcoms, but in the style of a sitcom club, whence we came. If you're not already subscribing to us on iTunes, you can do so. All the details, you'll find them at podnose.com, and you can also find us on Twitter, Jaffas for Proust, and we've got our own nice, new, shiny iTunes feed just for Jaffa Cakes. And Sitcom Club will be back on an occasional basis, mainly bank holidays throughout twenty sixteen. So the first one's gonna come up about Easter. So probably around about Good Friday or thereabouts, but we'll give you plenty of advance warning. And we'll we're open
1: of... to suggestions.
0: Yes, you can still tweet us, of course. We're still on Twitter at the sitcom club by the way. And sitcomclub.com. What non-sitcom related paraphernalia are we talking about today, this day, the month of February?
1: Today we are talking about bond knockoffs. Normally we do it in patterns of three, this time we decided it's going to be four so that we could call it four non-Bonds. So one thing that caught my interest was the idea of the Bond films as beginning the idea of the blockbuster franchise. Maybe there's something really obvious I'm missing out and there had previously been movie franchises but I always think of previous movie franchises as being things like St Trinian's, Old Mother Riley, Man Parkettle, Andy Hardy, the stuff of B-movies, the stuff is lower down the bill. The idea of a huge, expensive drama adventure movie franchise seems to be something that starts with James Bond. And please tell me if there's something obvious that I've missed.
0: A lot of people are shouting carry-ons just now, and I'm one of them.
1: Expensive drama action movie franchise n- n- never mind the carry-ons no
0: never mind the individual words franchise that's the key bit the carry-ons started 1958 so they're well underway by the time i put Bond those in the
1: same class as saint trinian's and old mother riley so now here's an excuse to talk about hans Conried, great actor and presenter of a silly show called fractured flickers where they took silent movie footage and dubbed it with silly voices shades of Ferdinand de bargos done i think circa 1963 no in 1963 yeah maybe into 64 and every show they had an interview with an actual star of the time took a break from all the dubbing and in one of them he's interviewing ursula andress and he introduces her as the star of dr no i'm sure there's a couple of other things i've seen contemporary reactions and reports and it's talking about dr no as a hit movie but not Dr. No was a Bond movie. I mean, Ursula Andress is not introduced as a Bond girl. She's the girl from Dr. No. It's just that little interesting molten phase where maybe they'd only made... Imagine they stop after Goldfinger. That'd just be, yeah, there were three James Bond movies and they did very well. James Bond's sort of unique as a franchise. It's been running for 50-some years. And... All the movies are expensive. So I thought, right, here's an interesting pop cultural phenomenon, but it's a bit too big for Jaffa Cakes. It's a little bit too successful. And also, there was a bit in Spectre that annoyed the hell out of me. Spill it. No, it's still a relatively new movie. Some people might not have got to see it at the cinemas, and they're waiting for home video releases and streaming, so I'm not going to blow the fact that... Oh, that was an LDS spoiler, actually.
0: Now, i thought of another successful franchise, by the way, that predates Bond. Go on. Charlie Chan. B-movie. Poverty Row. Oh, please. (laughs) (laughs) They were always on BBC Two in the day.
1: I'm sorry, everybody who's downloaded this for the Bond thing, but we're just going to talk about Fractured Flickers. There's one where he has a jokey interview with Roddy McDowell. And the idea is, is that Hans has been doing so much research into silent movies, he's actually failed to keep up with modern movie making and roddy mcdowell mentions cleopatra as being the most expensive film of all time and hans goes now now i know you're joking i can't remember which film he says was it intolerance i think it sounded like intolerance is the most expensive film ever made it cost a million dollars and roddy mcdowell says a million dollars isn't that much money these days he couldn't even make a good charlie chan and hans <laughs> says well nobody ever has so card sense davy bond well, as part of this, two of the characters we're going to look at predate Bond. So I thought initially it'd be quite cute, and also it wouldn't take that much research because I've seen them and heard of them before, to look at two characters being bent towards the Bond model. And our first one is OSS-117. as a character from a series of French pulp novels. First movie is made in 1956, but f- for those of you who don't speak French, or can't fake it. OSS Double one seven. We've got a guy with a code number that sounds just a little bit like the most successful code number out there, and nobody can touch us for it. That should have been the voiceover in the trailer. (laughs) Very cynical view to take. Yes, but I'm I'm, I'm sure it must have occurred to them. (laughs) The character had already had one film pre Bond. They make a film in 1963. Maybe it's in response to the success of Dr. No. But we picked one from 64. There's already been two Bond films. 64 is the year of Goldfinger. 64 is the year of Bond mania, I would have said. And it gives us a nice little view into Bond before Bond mania. Or spy fiction before Bond mania. Because oss Sandy said bonk in bangkok the film we watched. There are a couple of big set pieces and action things, but a lot of it is what I'd call espionage procedural. He turns up in an exotic location but he's just really piecing things together getting in a couple of fights and it's the stuff of early bond it's the stuff of early bond novels because even i think the books ended up becoming way out blockbusters even before the films were made i think the first 5 bond novels have this distinct feel and then the rest of them go more towards what we'd think of as james bond type stories but having said that, this does have something that I think marks out Bond from previous spy fiction. And again, those first five Bond novels. First five, he's definitely going up against the KGB. I know they talk about Schmirsch, which I think had been a real counter-espionage agency in the Soviet Union. I think it might have been defunct by the time the Bond books are coming out. But he's going up against the Russians. He does meet a couple of like diabolical masterminds, but since they're being funded by the Russians, I'm trying to remember if Doctor Know if there's any sense of that or if he really is just a freelance nutter. But this is this OSS Sunday Set film. He is going up against a lunatic bad guy who wants to take over the world. For all that the spy stories of the time are really made in the crucible of this Cold War. No, crucibles are hot, that's a stupid metaphor. We were fighting the Russians all through the 60s, and yet quite a lot of our spy fiction at the time was about fighting other guys, just lawn loonies who wanted to destroy the world, kill all the women, keep all the women, kill all the men, make everybody grow sideburns, that kind of thing.
0: Is that a deliberate reaction on the part of the writers and screenwriters and so on, almost to not called counterculture, that's not the right word, but to offer an alternative. In other words, if you've got a ton of dramatic material being made about the Cold War, then this is, in its own nice little way, it's sort of like an escape route, you know? Just a nice silly story Yeah, I think about- this
1: part of it is that fear, the fear of World War 3 being a little bit too present. So it's a way of living out... Cold War fantasy without actually thinking about the real opposition and what really might happen. There's possibly the idea that if we acknowledge them too directly, they've won in a way. <laughs>
0: yeah, I know what you mean. I'm what thinking they
1: won. partially what happened in the war when in 1946. <laughs> there's a little stockpile of war films that are now immediately out of date, and you end up with a similar situation towards the end of the 80s. Bonn had not been officially made the capital of West Germany until quite close to the Berlin Wall coming down. Bonn was kind of acting capital of Germany, but we're not actually going to really admit that Berlin is half-owned by communists. We hope that one day, and then by the time it's like, look, guys, we're going to have to admit we're never getting Berlin back. Oh, we got Berlin back. (laughs) Damn. Do you have anything to say about OSS on d set because you enjoyed this more than I did because I found this really dry
0: I enjoyed it for what it was I found it quite charming I thought there was a bit of the Spats effect going on where you can enjoy the scenery and just the overall sort of atmosphere of it it's a bit stodgy in parts and I got the impression perhaps that this was like you were suggesting it's been sort of put through the Bond filter but it's not done so in a wholehearted way so you've got plot, you've got your A to B and what have you, and then occasionally you'll have a bit of a scrap.
1: And then occasionally you have somebody get into a car and we'll watch the drive in agonising detail. I, I,
0: I like those bits, but then I've watched Telly Savalas visits Wolverhampton or whatever it is. So, yeah, I don't mind those things. I don't mind it suddenly turning into a travel log. Maybe John Carter will turn that up. Or...
1: It's not even a travel log. It's just a long shot of a car going down a road.
0: Well, did we watch a director's cut of this or something, unwittingly? Because that's one thing you never really see these days in the listings. Something you used to see back in the day, there's certain films where a screening in one particular region or another might be longer than the regular screening. So there's like extra bits in it. So but you did say when we were watching this that you you felt that this could have been maybe three quarters as long easily. Oh, yes. And, and yeah. yeah, a lot of stuff could be junked. So I don't know, maybe we're sort of watching a long form extended version. There's nothing funny going on here, is there? There's no... Not to my
1: knowledge, no. This is the movie, as was... Well, watching the English dub, where they changed the lead character's name from Hubert Bonisseur de la Batte to Hubert Barton. Did I mention that uh, the character's given a French background, but he's actually meant to be working for the Americans? OSS being kind of a predecessor to the CIA. I got a feeling about this that we all know that films are not made in order, but there seemed to be some sense that... Okay, he's looking for the baddie and he's driving here and driving there. There's a fight. There's a bit of machine gunnery, And then suddenly the main bad guy is there in a big black cape in an underground bunker. It's almost like they got a sudden sense of, look, this is the way spy fiction's got. Just change the ending. Make it bigger. Make it crazier.
0: There is a sense of occasionally remembers that if your theory is true, that it's supposed to be tapping into the success of Bond. So those little bits come and fits and stuff. But it
1: feels like this was decided late in the production of the film. Like if you had a copy of the script, you'd suddenly notice the pages change colour for the last few scenes. He tracks down the bad guy to his office and shoots him. No, hang on a Scratch that. He tracks down the bad guy to his massive base where he's giving an insane speech in a big black cape. Can I just mention that OSS 107's boss has the same voice as Dr. Connery in the film After Next? Okay, Connery. Ah, That was right. distracting.
0: I don't think it'd be distracting to too many cinema goers in 1964. But yeah, it's like if perhaps. you
1: once you recognise Robert Rietti's voice, huge chunks of 60s cinema are ruined. He was the dubbing king.
0: We still haven't actually identified why June Whitfield revoiced Valérie Leon in Carry On Girls. I mean, I have to. I haven't made any particular efforts to find that out this year. But that mystery still be solved.
1: Well, while you're researching that, Bulldog Drummond, a character from the 1920s. Well, he he continued for a long
0: time. Why isn't Bulldog uh, Drummond who's... played by Ballard Barclay? Because he bloody well should have been. When? What, in 1967? Not necessarily. No, maybe 1935.
1: He's been played by some fairly distinguished people. He's played Ralph Richardson. Drummond is described as being ugly in the original stories. He's a bit of a bruiser, and... He's the unacceptable face of jingoistic colonialism. Something that's talked about a lot around Bulldog Drummond. And the film with Ralph Richardson, I think it's like Bulldog Drummond and his friends form a society for spying on foreigners. (laughs) So the Bulldog Drummond film Deadlier Than the Mail from 1967, I think it's just a case of, right, here is a character people have heard of and he has adventures. So... That'll do. We can pour that into a Bond-shaped mould.
0: this one did have a token American, didn't it?
1: Yeah, we'll get to that, because I almost had a weird thought about this that I, I don't think is really true. But this one I think is successful in that the things that distinguish Bond from the espionage procedurals, it's a little bit more unusual. It's a little bit more larger than life. It's not gone completely mad. We're not quite at volcano bases. And stolen spacecraft. It's really a routine investigation turns out to be something far stranger. And this has Richard... Jo- well, you know what? I say Bulldog Drummond. They don't call him Bulldog Drummond. He's called Hugh Drummond at all times, isn't he? Now, I've heard that Richard Johnson turned down Bond. I'm not sure how true that is. But I can believe that his name was on a list somewhere at some point. Yeah, he is... Very James Bond. I mean, James Bond of the books, he's got that establishment feel that I think Connery never had. Connery's a good Bond for the 60s because there is just that slight sense of, for all his sophistication and affectation, there is a slight sense of class mobility in Connery's Bond. Connery's Bond is not strike as somebody who's expelled from Eton.
0: No. I do get the sense of Connery's Bond that it's believable that he would occasionally go... Slightly off the rails, not do things by the book. Whereas your man Drummond, in this case, he's he's a bit more sort of conventional.
1: I kind of like that though. I I like James Bond books. Not a big fan of the movies, and I'd say yeah, Richard Johnson is very much the Bond of the books. Well, you know, you know the thing about Connery is just occasionally, as a character, he tries way too hard, and I don't think we're meant to get the sense that he's trying way too hard. Is it? Is drinking brandy? And he identifies the vintage. And M says, brandy doesn't have a vintage. And he goes, I'm identifying the vintage of the original wine the brandy's based on. And we're meant to think, yeah, you should, him. You're so... Anybody in real life would just go, oh, you. Oh, can't believe. Oh, oh. <laughs> the hell. You spoiled it. You're harshing my mellow. I was in the brandy place, man you just come and sneered all over it, you fake posho. Go back to delivering milk. Hey, W. Gill, the little people are waiting. Oh, ah, oh. That never happens in a Bond film. Yes, I like Saki, especially when it's served at the right temperature and goes on to say what the temperature is. He doesn't, he doesn't come across as friendly. Goes, oh, you've got the temperature right and everything.
0: Right. This is not just me going off at a tangent, okay? Well, it probably is. Is Bond Boost Forsyth? In other words, Brucey, helm of the generation game. Brucey's not allowed to fail. Doesn't do the games because Brucey's always going to be in charge and Brucey's always right. So you couldn't have anybody correct Sean Connery because. Yeah, then, but
1: he's rubbing people's face in how correct he is.
0: Yeah, but he is 007. So technically, he can sort of do what he wants. Isn't that the lyric to one of the songs? 007, he does whatever he likes.
1: Man, woman, or beast. <laughs> Okay, I have a crazy theory about this. Hugh Drummond, sophisticated, non-super-spy, actually investigation agent for an insurance company. His nephew comes from America to stay. And for a while, he's got this young man, this sort of late teens, early 20s boy-in-tour. Theory one, they were trying to get themselves some Batman action by giving him a Robin.
0: Oh.
1: Theory 2 This isn't a Bulldog Drummond script This is Sexton Blake and Tinker That was the feeling I got from this Sexton Blake didn't have Watson He had Tinker Who was a young man Who was a bit more likely to get in fights So it's just odd You you don't normally have a kid sidekick for Bond
0: So You've got Sexton Blake He is Arkwright, and then you've got Tinker Granville.
1: If you want to drag it down to your level, yes.
0: Uh, uh, no, I'm just I'm just giving an example. You because know, like you know, Granville he's he's a bit more sort of hot headed and he's not got his eye on the prize and what have you, whereas Arkwright's very single minded and focused and what have you.
1: I think Granville's probably moderately more successful with the ladies than Hugh Drummond's nephew. There's a really weird scene where Drummond's nephew is trying to seduce this girl, and the girl is young by Bond film standards. I mean, she's playing it young. I'm saying this is a sexual boldness akin to Metal Mickey. She licks her lips at one point (laughs) like a toothpaste commercial. It's peculiar for a 60s film. It feels like a sexy Disney comedy. You don't normally see young sex in the James Bond frame. There's that thing about she says, you know, she wants a cigar because cigars make her feel sexy. It always seems that peculiar thing, that tissue-thin wall of protection between the idea of sex and what actually happens. And a lot of the way through you're following a couple of hit women kind of distaff Winton kid are we okay to drop a spoiler for a 50 year old film? They kill Leonard Rossiter.
0: That's not right is it? That's just No. That's just, no, no.
1: But if ever you want a scene of Leonard Rossiter snogging Elkie Summer you've got it here you go
0: a scene unfortunately which was not replicated in carry on behind
1: so what's happening is executives at an oil company are dropping like flies and these just happen to be the people who are opposing a certain merger and rather than pay out his life insurance they want to be absolutely sure what's happening here and they bring in Hugh Drummond he investigates and finds it's a big murder racket and who's behind it all why it's Carl Peterson I'm getting a bit of a John Carter vibe here. Did you see John Carter? As in, wish you were here? What, from Mars? No, a few years ago, there was a big blockbuster film called John Carter, and the posters were very dependent on you already caring who John Carter was.
0: That's why I'm thinking of John the Carter, g- wish you were here, because there was lots of tweets and, and memes and what uh-uh. you. Yep.
1: In fact, some of the posters just said, JCM. There wasn't enough work put in to saying, this is who John Carter is and he goes to Mars. It was assuming a certain cultural pervasiveness that wasn't there. And they're using the name Carl Peterson. And are we supposed to go, oh, Why it's Carl Peterson, Drummond's archenemy. Or was it just a case of, look, they gave the bad guy a name. We might as well use it. So this has got a sense of the unusual. You've got the set piece with the giant remote control chessmen. The villain has a base, but it's in a normal building. But he's got peculiar things. He's got he's got that bald wrestler from the Butch Tobacco commercial from Kitten Kong. So it's a realistic bad guy hideout. We're not quite at the volcano base craziness. Well this isn't really a spy though it's just it's a crime film with the trappings of a spy film we've got assassination i guess you could call it but it's writ large it's got a heavy hint of the unusual i thought it was very successful
0: yes it's a nice wee jaunty rollick and it held
1: my attention it has lots of incident it's not just a matter of this guy was killed Go and look. Could we have the weird little MacGuffin with a surviving scrap of tape? Oh, one honking great coincidence. His nephew just happens to be friends with somebody who will be very, very important to the plot towards the end.
0: That is useful. You
1: got lashings of sexism, really. It's a
0: different time, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, no. But I just wanted to acknowledge that. I know you being such an unreconstructed hairy knuckled <laughs> brute, we can't have a tumbler. <laughs> But I just did want to quickly check our privilege. Yep, it's still there.
0: This is why we can't do live podcasts, because you don't dare put me on the air. I don't know. I I try my best. I occasionally read The Guardian and what have you, but you never know what what I might say at parties. Actually, that's why I don't get invited to parties.
1: And then we come to the Bond knockoff that actually had a knock-on effect on the relationships in the real world of James Bond. Apparently during You Only Live Twice... Sean Connery was not on speaking terms with Bernard Lee and Lois Maxwell M um, and Miss Moneypenny, respectively, in the Bond franchise. And it's because they'd agreed to do a film called OK Connery, also known as Operation Kid Brother, also known as Operation Double 007, <laughs> starring Neil Connery, Sean Connery's younger brother. This is possibly the most famous of the four films we're going to talk about. Thanks to being featured on Mystery Science Theatre 3000. This was the first time I'd watched the film without the benefit of three characters in the corner of the screen saying funny things over the top. Gary, I apologise. I thought this was going to be more fun than it was.
0: <laughs> it was a bit of a chore, I admit. But at the same time, the part of me that's fascinated by this kind of situation. Actually, did you say 1967? Yes. So you've got two you You've got two wrong Bonds in 67 because you've also got Casino Royale as well. Car! So is this like the peak of Bond knockoffism? I suppose you would say. Until you get to 83.
1: I'm fascinated by why would Bernard Lee and Lois Maxwell agree to do this? Surely it would get them in trouble.
0: It's the kind of thing you'd expect somebody to do after they've left the main franchise, but not during.
1: I mean, there's no attempt to give them plausibly deniable names it's uh, was it colonel cunningham and miss maxwell <laughs> i suppose for lois maxwell she gets out of the office she doesn't just get a scene at the beginning and maybe a scene at the end she gets to be an agent
0: right now i have uh, an issue to raise straight away <laughs> about this he's called neil connery in the film there aren't that many films where you get the title character being played by the person with the same name in the film, if you know what I mean. I mean, usually they come up with like a slightly different name, isn't that? Normally they have films work.
1: He's playing the brother of their top agent. So naturally the implication is that oh yeah, this is actually an adjunct to the real Bond films.
0: The name's Bond. Wrong Bond.
1: But if you say, well, our top agent isn't available. Let's go and get his brother dr bond lawsuit immediately never mind mr cunningham and miss maxwell so it's like we can't call him bond but we're trading off a very successful franchise we need a name people will recognize and associate with james bond and he's already called connery so they can't touch us for calling him connery so it's just that the name connery is very bankable
0: okay here's an idea they may have considered this, obviously they didn't go with it, but it's worth bringing up. Even though his name's Connery, could they have legally changed his name to James Bond?
1: <laughs> you So you actually want, I mean, I think there was a little bit of friction between the Connery brothers over this. You actually want to set brother against brother. I'm going to say, no, no, they couldn't have. And I'm going to say, you put that suggestion to Neil Connery himself, it's like, look, a a laugh's a laugh, but I actually have some pride. (laughs) But also in this, we have Adolfo Celli, Daniela Bianchi, Anthony Dawson. These are people who've also been in Bond films. So they're really pushing the Bond button. On paper, this should be deeply fascinating. They're just trying to make it as Bond-like as possible. And it's kind of a
0: snooze. It did go on.
1: OSS Sandy set was slow, and there's lots of just, like, meandering from location to location, but it doesn't fail to keep promises. It starts out slow. It continues slow. You know you're watching a leisurely movie. This has built up its promise that this is going to be an extra Bond film. You're going to have more Bond in 1967 than you can handle. And then this is just... Right, the bad guys. Let's go get the bad guys. Let's have a fight here. Let's have a fight there. Bad guys. The bad guys are talking to each other. The plot doesn't twist or turn. I know there's struggles at the top of the organisation Thanatos, but... It doesn't feel like the plot actually moves. I mean, there are incidents, but they just pop up. What's the thing about the nuclear carpets? (laughs) (laughs) They're hiding nuclear material in a carpet factory and the guys are working on it. They get blind men so that they don't know they're working on dangerous material. Is it just that I'm a bad watcher that I found this so meandering that the part of my brain that should have been paying attention to the plot just said, uh, sorry, I'm going to start thinking about the 1857 tune to Jingle Bells.
0: Well, you often are, but... Oh, yes. No, in this case, no, I'll let you off. I mean, I did actually say to you, I think on more than one occasion, what's going on? Because wrong Bond was faffing about somewhere, doing something, and I'd sort of forgotten what he was there for.
1: I mean, you got nice dressed up ladies looking all dressed up and stuff and wearing lots and lots of 60s makeup. but just doesn't happen does it actually there is one idea in this that is really great it just seems to come a bit late we do have the big fight in the base at the end but the bad guys have got some evil machine that stops electronics and mechanical things it stops guns you can't use a gun in a certain radius of this castle base and you can't get a car. So we have to have the day being won by guys on horseback with bars and arrows. I thought that made for a really nice weird set piece.
0: I didn't actually pick up on the bit about the car. So I did wonder about that, because they said that he was part of this sort of Robin Hood society or whatever the hell it was, and then all these buddies turn up, and it's like, well, they're there anyway, so they might as well help out. But I didn't really realise that there was a necessity for them to be there. I actually found that quite weird, to be honest i mean yeah it's clever because you know it's all gun based and so if you can throw away the guns for the finale then yeah but
1: maybe it's not the plot maybe it's not the script maybe it's just the fact that there seem to be lots of long shots and of course this being an italian film did i mention that it's an italian film it's dubbed italians like to make their movies without location sound and then put everything in afterwards maybe the voice acting was taking emotion out of things and then the shots just weren't excitingly picked if i was smarter than i am i'd have some accurate use of the phrase mise-en-scene but i'm not so i want
0: composition that's a word i learned that once
1: maybe just didn't need a change in the script to be exciting this was an exciting idea poorly handled and of course it being dubbed somebody who doesn't seem to have been present for the dubbing sessions is neil connery so he's got this weird american accent that sounds like he's paging mr Wee herman
0: now why the facial hair on wrong bond because i thought that that was taken away a bit from the whole bond business because actually he looked more at home when he was with all the robin hoods than he did as a secret agent
1: i, I think maybe that is Neil Connery's own beard. No, but get rid of it. I've seen a trailer for another film he's in. I think he's at least got a moustache in that. So maybe that's just his his matter of pride. Maybe the beard is something he kept so that people didn't stop him in the middle of plastering saying, You're James Bond. No, I'm not. Look at the beard. Because he did look, you know, he does look like his brother.
0: We do have an issue to address when it comes to Neil Connery. And that is that Neil Connery does not always appear when he's billed in certain. (laughs)
1: yes wikipedia says neil connery was in an episode of only when i left and we're just winding down we said oh let's take a look at that only when i left and he's not in it we've been tricked by what a weird piece of wikipedia vandalism
0: you see if you're gonna and not that I, i in any way can do this but if you're gonna engage in wiki editing of that ilk that's the kind of way to do it isn't it you know because if you put something in donald trump's page i'm sure that's probably got padlock on it anyway but if you put something spurious on there it's going to be taken off in seconds whereas if you go onto the page of somebody who's sort of faintly known and then you just put something like that in and even especially this is a good one see if you put in a fact that is isn't a fact then make sure you cite it, but cite it from a book or something like that. Cite it from a newspaper article, not something that people can go on and check online. So it could well sit there for years. And yeah, we fell victim to it, right into the trap. I don't know who did that, but...
1: The one bit that I thought was very 1967, that point when postmodernism really seems to kick in to action films and things get crazy. When they're kidnapping the atomic nucleus... (laughs) Science? Haney science, anyway. The women steal the jeep and they disguise it as some sort of advert for a casino? I mean, they're all dressed up as can-can girls to distract the military guys in the jeep who are protecting the nucleus. And then for some reason, maybe it's like somebody might have spotted the can-can girls, they then all dress up in sort of like bunny girls but actually cats, although they kind of look like skunks.
0: And then drive this big advert for a casino. The first ever Pepe Le Pew themed casino. And the last as well.
1: <laughs> well at
0: least it's not based on Sheriff Hoot Clute.
1: can't believe those are coming out on Blu-ray.
0: <laughs> Everything's coming out on Blu-ray. It'll be on my note next.
1: I thought that scene captures that flavour, that Casino Royale. That point where spy fiction really becomes crazy and it, it no longer resembles anything actually done in espionage. It's just... Branding, popular culture. I don't know what I'm saying. Some sort of odd projection of consumerist thingies on the concept of war. Oh, we'll fix that in the edit.
0: <laughs> yeah, whatever. That's it's me, fine. What you just said. But that kind of bit, you need a bit more of that, don't you? Because a lot of it's plodding and flat and so on. And yeah, you want a bit of oomph. It's an awkward one, isn't it? Because if you're doing a knock-off of a popular franchise, then you're not really in a position to then interject new ideas and bits and pieces, are you? The thread's broken. Sorry,
1: how do we move from OK Connery to number one of the Secret Service?
0: We're jumping 10 years. One thing I'll say about Neil Connery is that he certainly puts in as much as he can into his performance. He gives it his all. He gives it plenty, really
1: no that's not a good link
0: (laughs) so we're jumping
1: 10 years by which time the Bond franchise has got silly it's just the way things were going and this film we're looking at number one of the Secret Service it's silly it's taking it in a different direction Houston film style violence I think that's what marks this out
0: Mm -hmm. yes yeah I know what you mean I mentioned to you when we were watching this I wasn't aware of this until just a few weeks ago, but The Long Good Friday apparently was made with the intention of it purely being a television film. and never really intended for cinematic release and it was because it did so well. I think it was initially at a screening in Edinburgh, I think it was, that it did very well and then it went on to London and so on. Before you knew it, it was a very successful British cinematic release. And yeah, there's definitely an element of that going on here. It reminds me a bit of the Sweeney. It reminds me a bit of the Professionals as well.
1: Here's the thing. I think I've mentioned these words before. I'll mention them again. Sophistication and vulgarity. You know I was saying earlier about Sean Connery being pedantic and showy about what he's drinking? Sake and brandy. So it appears sophisticated to the vulgar and vice versa. A weird thing, Bond is all a fantasy about living the high life, but if you overstate it, it becomes needy. Whereas, a certain section of the audience who'll just want it to go further, number one of the Secret Service is the movie for people who want it to go further
0: and <laughs> then say no too far. He has two
1: magnums <laughs> that he keeps twirling, he's shooting people. I mean, there's no time to waste, he's shooting people who are shooting at him. But he still finds time to twirl his guns as he's doing it. He's a really over-the-top version of the guy who wins every time. There's a bit where rock lecturer Brian Appleton tries to kill him. Well, Graham Fellows is not in this film, but the guy's got the jacket and he's also <laughs> got the bad curly wig. Guy comes in to try and kill him, and no one just stands there and the guy goes bang, bang, and the bullets bounce back and kill him because there's bulletproof glass that apparently slides out of nowhere when anybody tries to kill number one. He's so smug about it.
0: He is, but I actually don't find him that annoying in this. He's played by Nicky Henson, by the way. We haven't mentioned that. Yeah, he's quite pleasant on screen, even though, yes, he is very smug, and he's always right, and and what have you.
1: This is also unique in slagging off Bond in its theme tune. Would you like to talk about the theme tune, because it made a great impact on you?
0: So the theme tune is called Given It Plenty. Uh, that, That is its name, and... Who's it by again? You found out the name of the composer, didn't you? Simon Bell.
1: It was released as a forty-five on Pi.
0: We've got to get that. Let's scour at eBay for that. Anyway, no. So it's like, Whoa, hey, it's like I'm James Bond. Whoa. It's like a sort of ITV Four version of James Bond.
1: But no, the line that struck me in the theme tune is, "I'm a winner at every game, and zero is never beside my name." Did somebody say trying too hard? This feels like it's been made by a 14-year-old who's seen the Bond films and said that Bond's not cool enough. He's only got one gun. He should have two that he fires all the time and he should twirl them and he
0: should wear a dinner jacket way more often. See, the thing is, okay, it's really difficult for us to describe exactly the the sort of feel of this film, but we'll do our best, right? The trailer is on YouTube. Yeah. Okay, so imagine... Have you ever seen The Professionals on ITV4? First of all, imagine that sort of colour is slightly off. It's like a jigsaw puzzle that's been in the window of a toy shop for ten years in direct sunlight. Now, that's just because that's the version that we saw. Now, it might be that this does come out in Blu-ray once they finished finished releasing Ratfink or whatever the hell it is next. Thing, that's it. But nonetheless, it's got that sort of feel about it. It's like, it's all a bit grimy and dark and seedy and what have you. And the incidental music, there's about two pieces of incidental music which are used repeatedly. I do like that, actually. As far as violence goes, it's not gory. It's not like that. It's just over the top. Cause whereas we are saying, for example, your man um OSS of the double one seven, he occasionally has a bit of a scrap. But there's nothing compared to Her Majesty's Top Gun. I mean he doesn't go looking for it. It's not like he starts it all the time. And he would say that, wouldn't he, you know?
1: Yeah, there's been some assassinations and number one. Finds the bad guy immediately, and says, "I think you're behind it, but I can't prove it." And then the bad guy goes, "I'm going to have you killed." And that's it. They just wander around for the rest of the film, bumping into each other, and the bad guy going, I'm "Going to have you killed." i Got people around here going to kill you, and then they try and kill him, and then they don't. They fail because he's a winner at every game. I know we can't have a tumbler, but some of our listeners might want to be warned that one of the people sent after to kill him is some kind of weird transphobic stereotype. And you have the post-murder or post-fight puns. So a barber tries to kill him, and number one gets him and then says, that was a close shave. And then, of course, we see him going to dinner with his Bond girl, who is played by the lovely Amy MacDonald. And she says, you've had a shave? And he goes, yes, a close one. It's like, no. Also, talking about glamorous locations. All the other three films have interesting locations. This doesn't. This is the grimy, rundown 70s London and estuary.
0: But that's what I like about it. That's what I like about it now is that that's the interesting location. Well, there's
1: one bit where you can see they're almost trying to reach for something because there's a fight on a ferry. It's the same mistake they made with Triangle. That idea that cruise ships, they're kind of glamorous locations, but they're also expensive. But a ferry is like a small cruise ship. A ferry's little thing that goes up and down A piece of slate grey water Covered by slate grey sky
0: It's confined I did actually like On on the ferry he meets The guy who has been trained By Dudley Sutton And he's like a cowboy And he's doing his gunslinging And he he looks like One of the cast of Poodle Saddles (laughs) And I really just wanted You know, Henson to look at him Doing his twirling and then just say what do you look like you utter plank you're on a ferry for goodness sake this isn't okay corral
1: you're on the cow between Brodick and Ardrossen <laughs>
0: exactly I think he should have just blown him <laughs> away right there and then he shouldn't even wait for the duel
1: <laughs> oh we had that weird bit where number one jumps out of his shoes so yeah he's the bizarre unbeatable hero created by a hyperactive child
0: it's like a sort of Blue Peter competition isn't it
1: well it's the Children's
0: Film Foundation Bond film yeah exactly except they couldn't go out at half past four in the afternoon but yes yeah it is like that there's not a lot of hanging around which you get in the CFF films and he's you up against an organisation
1: called Crash Killing Raping Arson Slaughter and Hit That not make any sense That not make any sense Killing Slaughter Hit there's some distinction between these that means they get their own letter
0: do you know what the H should have stood for Why ever not? Go on, have a bit of company right at the end.
1: So yeah, what we've got Dudley Sutton, Richard Todd is the bad guy. So Amy MacDonald is the bind girl. Yes, sorry, did I forget to mention that? The maker of this, Lindsay Shontef, had made three films in the 60s starring Focus North's Tom Adams as a character called Charles Vine, uh, second best agent in the whole wide world i think it was called uh one of our russian spies is missing that was the third one and i forget what the second one was called but just take my word for it the three bond knockoff films that again we're saving for a rainy day this is something we can keep coming back to every time we get desperate for a topic and i guess towards the end of the 70s Lindsay shanteff decided he wanted to revisit the character he must have had some break with a previous business partner because it was decided the character could no longer be called Charles Vine so he became Charles Bind (laughs) (laughs) and for this film our Bind girl is Amy MacDonald more famed for being silly and flighty and a pointed mockery of a certain kind of 60s shall we use the word Dolly Bird
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, I suppose. Air-headed.
1: Talking about the kind of character she played. You've got to be clever to pretend to be that silly. And in this, it's a straight role. And she's trying to rein in her high-pitched voice. It's only going so far. I mean, there is this thing of her constantly getting squirted with a seltzer bottle so that you can see through her shirt. But it's just not happening. Why? Why? amy mcdonald who's very good at playing a certain kind of excessively cute away with the fairies young woman is meant to be playing a normal person what i'm trying to say here it's not that amy mcdonald is a bad actress who plays her this part badly it's like what a waste of amy mcdonald she could be off doing something else She's good at something and she doesn't do it in this. Pa. And yeah, we have. Well, did I already mention Dudley Sutton? I'll mention him again. Dudley Sutton and that man from the Butch tobacco advert in Kitten Kong. <laughs> oh, I forgot to mention John Pertwee and Sue Lloyd and oh, Jeffrey Keane, who actually went on to be in some proper Bond films. I'm not sure if he overlaps with his time as number one's boss Rockwell, but Jeffrey Keane was from the Ministry of Defense in, I in think. Four or five Bond films.
0: So 321's free when a Carson turns up and Bind thinks that she might be some sort of undercover agent, but she manages to convince him that she's not. But then she is. Spoilers. And that's where Amy MacDonald comes in, because she's actually a useful secret agent on her own right.
1: And John Pertwee as the Reverend Walter Braithwaite. For some reason part of it takes Bind up to Manchester to investigate some Religious organisation. Now, when Bond seduces a woman, he seduces her back to his room, or back to her room, or back to some plushly appointed suite at the Nottingham Hilton.
0: He doesn't just have a quick one under the desk, like Bob Todd.
1: Oh, yes. Bind is a man of action, right in the office, right on the desk. If John Pertwee had walked in, goodness knows what he would have said. But he's reading a mucky mag in his room, because... That's comedy, you see. He's got a dark collar because he's religious, but he's also reading a dirty magazine. Savage, savage. Oh, it's worthy of H.L. Mencken. Oh, you prick the pomposity of organised religion. And then he slams his lad in a drawer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, does, what does he do? He, he gets up and slams a draw and the implication is that he's caught some part of him in there but then he keeps going. So was he left it behind? What? What? Well,
0: he's probably taken a little off the top and he thinks, okay, well, that's not the worst thing that could have happened so I'll, I'll call it quits there. That is the best thing of the film.
1: Anything more useful to be said about number one of the Secret Service? This
0: is parasitic. What we're
1: doing is, is a little bit parasitic. Sometimes you find something new. Sometimes you find something interesting. And sometimes you're just describing stuff and bouncing jokes off it. Like there's no sense of irony in the original work. Have you ever talked to somebody who makes fun of Jason King? Because they seem to think that Peter Wingard didn't know he was being over the top?
0: Basically, you're talking about the entire cast of *I Love the 1970s, aren't you?
1: Well, anyway, we hope you've introduced you to the world of number one of the Secret Service, Charles Bind.
0: Zero is never beside him. Her Majesty's Top it? Gun is, my- in my opinion, is one of the greatest films ever made.
1: It's definitely one of the greatest number one of the Secret Service films. The things to think about is the influence of Bond on the idea of the big budget franchise blockbuster, spy fiction going from the West versus the East to. One rogue versus insane masterminds with their own private mercenary espionage organisations in really strange, large hideouts. Sophistication and vulgarity. What looks like showing off how sophisticated you are to one person looks just like showing off. And then if you take that a few steps further, it just looks weird. And given it plenty, it's a very catchy number. And if you're interested to hear some of the music we've talked about, we will do an additional Jaffa Kick jukebox to accompany this podcast, where we'll play some wrong Bond themes, some right Bond themes, some should-have-been Bond themes. We haven't picked all the tracks yet, but we're going to do a sort of James Bond special.
0: There are people out there thinking, what on earth is a Jaffa Kick jukebox? Well, if you don't know, then go to podnose.com, you'll find our previous JavaGate jukeboxes jukebox is on there available exclusively via mixcloud
1: it's basically when i get sick of the 20th century dominating our discourse and introduce a little bit of 21st century culture by playing some relatively recently released records we've only done three so far it was meant to be a summer replacement for when we'd stopped doing podcasts for a bit and it just took too long that by the time we were doing it we we're also doing the podcasts So it's going to be an occasional thing that we do, or that I do by myself. Because, Gary, you said you'd rather listen to it than present it.
0: Well, you see, I did feel, and I don't want to put anybody off listening to the first couple that are on the site already, but I did feel that I wasn't really bringing an awful lot to the table. Not that I've brought very much to the table today, but, I mean, in terms of, like, modern music, really, I, I don't. So there really wasn't any point in... Tilt I had to explain New
1: Weird America and anti folk to him. Oh, and he was furious with me. I think he wished he'd never come across that knowledge.
0: There wasn't much point in Tilt selecting all of these lovely six music type tunes. And then...
1: Six music? Six music play what I liked five years ago.
0: Well, and then Tilt explaining about what they were and who they were buying, uh, a further reading or listening or whatever. And then me saying, Ah, yeah, when are we playing Gloria Gaynor? I didn't think I was bringing much to the table. So yeah, I'm quite happy to to leave the decks to tilt.
1: But we're going to do a Bond-ish music special because people need to hear given it plenty. That's why. So speaking of music, and you said you said there are only two pieces <laughs> <laughs> of incidental music in No. One of the Secret Service that are just constantly played. There's one little extra bit. Now spoilers. Dudley Sutton, who is one of the bad guys, not the bad guy, but one of the bad guys. He doesn't make it to the end of the film, I'm afraid. He gets shot. I won't tell you who shoots him, so you have that to look forward to. But when he gets shot, suddenly the, the music track goes. <laughs> it's like, so that's the noise that Dudley Sutton makes when a bullet <laughs> enters him. He has some sort of gas filled bladder the caprice of evolution has given him the ability to go (laughs) before he hits the floor.
0: It's like, I mentioned the carry-ons before, it is like that. It's like James Bond, but with carry-on style sound effects. But next time... Well, next time, because we thought that perhaps this subject was a bit niche. So next month, we're going to be talking about something which is admittedly populist, but we make no apologies. We're going to be looking at three films which have something in common, namely that they all feature David Lodge as a policeman.
1: As a police sergeant? We, the whole thing of just David Lodge as a policeman has been run into the ground. We needed to focus it a bit more. We needed to hone that topic to a fine point. Next time, we'll be joined by one of our friends. He already knows he's coming on. So if you're one of our friends and you're listening to this and you think, <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to get the call. It's okay. No, it's all in hand. It's fine.
0: It's not like phone a friend. You won't, you won't be getting Chris Tarrant suddenly in your ear. Yes, that's going to be beginning of March. In the meantime, we've got, I think this is episode 14 now, or edition, 14 if you prefer, of Jaffa Cakes. And so all of them are available to listen to at pondnos.com. They're all available to listen to via iTunes. All the previous sitcom clubs are available at sitcomclub.com. And in the meantime, if you've got anything at all for us, you can tweet us, Jaffas for Proust. And until... Spring. Tilt. This has been number one mooncat, and you've been listening to Jaffa Cakes for Bind.